Welcome. This is the Public Relations Review Podcast, a program to discuss the many facets of public relations with seasoned professionals, educators, authors, and others. Now, here is your host, Peter Woolfolk. Welcome to the Public Relations Review Podcast and to our listeners all across America and around the world. Now, are you familiar with CBA, that is Community Benefits Agreements, and also the Corporate and Community Benefits of DEI? Well, my distinguished guest today has successful experiences in both, and he will articulate those important benefits today. Also, he is my very first guest from the state of Delaware. His distinguished public relations career includes being the 1999 elected global and national PRSA CEO and president. He has both APR and fellow APR credentials, and he won a silver anvil in 2000 for his successful campaign to vindicate the scapegoated 1941 Pearl Harbor commanders. Now, by the way, he has a friend in Delaware and neighbor who is quite well known all across America and beyond. And by the way, that friend and neighbor just happens to be President Joe Biden. So joining me today from Wilmington, Delaware is Sam Waltz. Sam, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on your multiple successes. Peter, thank you very much. It is a delight to be with a distinguished and an esteemed podcaster and professional uh, as you are. Well, thank you so much. So I tell you what, why don't we get started by describing exactly what is a community benefit agreement and then what are the benefits that actually accrue to communities that have these agreements? Well, when you look at where our profession in terms of public affairs and community relations is and where it's headed, for years we looked at that in the essence of a dialogue. How do we build communications? Uh, and too often it was the sender-receiver the sender receiver model. How do we send messages? Today, what we're doing increasingly, in my view, uh, with the community benefits agreement being part of what I call really corporate development or organizational development planning, is to recognize that every enterprise, Peter, has a variety of important stakeholders who have, um, in their own cases, a variety of interests and needs that may uh, relate to what an organization is doing. And in light of that, what you really want to do is understand and basically be able to detail those needs and then from that be able to fashion out activities, plans, and all of that that really represent a win-win outcome. So a community benefits plan, think of that as the architecture for how an organization will relate to the important stakeholders. It may be civic leaders. It may be blue-collar workers. It may be neighbors. It may be the clergy. It may be other important organizations and schools and so on. And building that community benefits agreement really becomes an important new emerging tool uh, and tactic in our skill set 
as as uh, as senior level professionals. Let me add something to that because I was actually involved uh, here in Nashville when they built their new Music City Center, which at the time was going to be the largest uh, construction project in Nashville's history, and that the Music City Center, well, if you watch the the NBA, you know, the draft uh, has been here, uh, NFL draft has been here, so the Music City Center is, is a focal point here in Nashville. But the fact was, that was exactly what they did. They looked into the community and held forums all over the community for two purposes. One, to let them know how it's going to be paid for, because it was not going to come out of real estate taxes or anything like that, and have them have some input as to what they would like to see in the center. So those uh, that outreach and how it's handled is hugely important to the success of the project. Absolutely. You're right on. And in the project I was involved in, my client is going after a major federal minority set-aside grant to help bring back solar panel manufacturing from China and India to the United States. We developed it here, but it really left by the late 1990s uh, and moved overseas for cost reasons. And so he's a native of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, He had successful Wall Street experience, and he's got the, the management gravitas to pull this together. But basically, given our needs, we needed to pick an area, a rural area that had the infrastructure to be able to support the power usage as well as the human capital. We picked that in rural East Central Ohio, and then from that, as uh, I built the plan to help scale the business uh, should we be awarded that grant, uh, and it will be a $250 million facility, not unlike the kind of project that you would have been involved in there in Nashville, then we began to say, all right, how do we build a win-win outcome with the community on this? How do we make certain that we're working with the community in the best way uh, that we can do? And Mm -hmm. that was the essence Mm -hmm. of my work in that. And, you know, I think that's important. So, So let's focus on that. Let's talk about what you actually did with the community what did you look for how did you assemble them how did you what groups did you identify and uh you know and then began to look at what their actual concerns were and how you responded to what those what those concerns were the uh excellent question peter when you look at that one of the things you always want to do in an emerging field and the cba the community benefits agreement is really an emerging tool in the toolkit of strategic communications and external affairs professionals. And the first thing I did was just go back and do some research because I always want to update myself on best practices, what's happening. And clearly environmental is one, workforce is another, and so on. But I really kind of went back to do some research before I ever went out to that part of Ohio. And then the second thing I did was research that part of Ohio. Now, interestingly, what, you know, what we wanted to do is be able to build benefits for the, the community. That area happens to be in uh, what, what they self-regard as a rural Appalachian, Appalachian area of Ohio. We were looking to create uh, identifiable benefits for a minority community, but in that county, in that area, there was not a significant minority community. So part of my counsel was to develop a plan 
where we then began to take the benefits of solar energy and solar panel manufacturing to the larger minority community of the entire state of Ohio and to structure that in a revolving loan fund, for example, where minority and disadvantaged families and impoverished families could basically leverage that aid to be able to go ahead and save money and fit more in the direction society is headed by accessing the the capital to put solar into their own homes, that's going to result in energy savings. At the same time, we began to work with local public officials from the mayor and the county officials to actually the people who run education. Why? Because we needed to basically be able to put in place human capital programs that could have jobs ready for the right people coming out of their their uh, workforce development programs. So we we did that that kind of thing. Then finally, we began to look at other areas. And one of the things that I recommended they have a they have a nicely robust United Way in that county, but they really did not have a kind of a, a corporate community philanthropy fund that we might that we might really know as as a community as a community fund and uh, i recommended that we create one of those and begin to really community foundation and begin to fund a community foundation that would begin to extend more permanent benefits that would be a legacy of this plant coming to ohio you know, one of the things that I, again, that I think about as I listen to this is particularly since you have so much high-tech industries coming in, uh, Nashville has Amazon is down here now, Oracle is down here, and some others are coming in, is that the city and or state, they have to begin to train people, either in community colleges or four-year colleges, to be, have specialties in uh, some of the high-tech arenas, you know, uh, obviously computers, uh, automation, all those other kinds of things that are needed because without that, they can't really compete with other states uh, to win these kinds of uh, development contracts if you can't provide the workers. So have you run across that or been involved in developing workers ahead of time so that they can bring them in? Well, uh, the the whole issue you bring up is a fascinating, really, DEI kind of issue, and let me speak to that first, and then I'll go to the specifics. Right here in Wilmington, Delaware, we're really adjunct to, formerly 200 years ago, part of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where they have a new governor, uh, Governor Shapiro. Interestingly, one of the first things that Governor Shapiro did in Pennsylvania, and I'm seeing it happen in other places of the country, is with the, with rare exceptions, he removed the requirement in Pennsylvania in the public sector to have a college degree, basically allowing people to work into and up to certain jobs. Obviously, certain jobs would need it, being a lawyer or being a doctor mm-hmm. for the state and some others. But one of the issues from a DEI point of view that I think has increasingly taken root, Peter, is requiring a four-year college degree or more, graduate school, is something that can disadvantage certain populations who may have neither the, the tradition of higher education or the funding to be able to go. Mm-hmm. And 
what's what's happening today as a trend is we're seeing America right now move away because of the cost of higher education from the from the job related requirements where it may not be essential. And when that's the case, then the real interesting question is, how do you then deliver that kind of training? I think that increasingly we're going to see that happen with workforce development kinds of programs out of the schools that we used to look at and say, well, that's SHOP or that's VOAG or something like that. And those programs are going to be increasingly tailored to a more high-tech level of manufacturing and services uh, and other things that will be supplemented by entry-level apprentice-type programs. Uh, the program we're looking at discussing there in that part of rural Ohio is a program that basically would begin to create apprenticeship programs even for some of these students at a junior or senior level in high school so they can begin to understand that, they can see a future, and it puts them on a productive track that can allow them to come up in jobs that we previously described, described as wage roll jobs, but for the ones who may have the, the interest and the ability and all that, grow into other levels of, of management and professionalization of the, of the enterprise. So that's what I see happening there. And that that's what that's where our discussions are right now. We won't be pulling the trigger on this until we see the DOE funding, but that's that's what our interest is. You know, as I listen to that, I certainly recall not only here in Tennessee but other places that uh, some some kids in high school who have this these special skills, particularly in technology, computer design, and and so forth and so on that states now are doing it uh, or getting them started in the two-year colleges, community colleges, so that they can get in there and be prepared. And sometimes uh, these kids are hired right out of community colleges into heavy-duty jobs, and it's then set up so that if they're doing a great job at it, then the uh, organization will pay for them to go get the finish up with a four-year degree with more education in these uh, high-end computer uh, jobs. So yep. there is a recognition, and you're right, that sometimes, you know, going to um, uh, social service, uh, you know, the first two years of college or wherever, you know, you do your social services, your English or whatever it is, has nothing to do with your your future, or just wasting time. And you're right, more kids are, are op opting to go into work rather than going to school because, one, the cost of education, and the fact is I've got a lot of training on, on how to write computer programming. Yep, that's. That's absolutely the case. But the cost is a bigger driver than many people realize, and it, that's one. But the other is how do we really better align our human capital resource with the workforce that will be employing them? And I think we're finding a way to be more focused and purposeful, and I think the community benefit agreement becomes the vehicle for creating and managing that dialogue, Peter. Mm-hmm. And I certainly agree with you because, as I said, here in Nashville, or, or at least in Tennessee, Ford is, is creating or building a, a plant to build all the electric cars. We've got uh, General Motors down the road from Nashville that is also building electric cars. As I said, Google and, and a lot of other, Amazon, they're all here. So there is a huge demand for people 
who have those kinds of skills. And, uh, and a lot of times they just can't wait for them to graduate from college. So setting up community benefits agreements that helps get the deliver the people to the jobs available is sounds to me to be a huge issue in a lot of areas. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit now about the DEI implications of, of uh, what you've been involved in. How do you see that being important and how should uh, either cities and or organizations go about establishing credible, effective DEI programs? Well, I think DEI, you know, we look at it today as kind of lane markers on the highway from a governance point of view. But I think DEI really uh, is much more driven by, uh, hopefully, hopefully, Peter, the everyday human values that most of us have as individuals. You know, it's kind of funny to be talking about DEI for me. I'm a 75-year-old, gray-haired, white-haired, white guy who grew up in, in a homogeneous rural county of Illinois where the idea of diversity was answered by the question, do you go to the Catholic Church or one of the Protestant churches? That was all the diversity <laughs> we had. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. And yet, as a young guy coming out of high school in 1965, I was interested in issues. I, my family was involved in Democrat politics, and by the time I was a sophomore, I was vice president of the campus Democrats at the University of Illinois. And aside from the Vietnam War, the, the big issue of the day certainly was civil rights. And for a guy who grew up in a homogeneous white rural county, uh, I became very involved in that. And it's a social ethic that has stayed with me for those nearly 60 years since. I need to also say that, you know, my mother was a Southern Baptist, so I've got a bit of what I call country Baptist DNA. And part of that, but I respect and honor all faiths. I, I kid that I'm the only Baptist you're going to meet who's got his own rabbi. But in the, all of that, we're reminded by that Christ was the one who said, love your neighbor. And that's the heart of what is at stake and how we make choices in terms of DEI. It's about caring for people. When you look at my mentees today, I've got... I've got, I just uh, had lunch with one, and she's a sharp young woman, 25. But Wednesday, I had lunch with another one. She's a sharp young Irish woman, banker, professional, who's actually openly gay. Now, how many bankers are you going to find that are, that are openly gay, but, but she is and a wonderful person? Three of my mentees are sharp, young, professional gay uh, women who are gay. Mm -hmm. And so it, to me, what it speaks to is that inherent tradition out of faith. And it's a faith, whether you're Christian, whether you're Jewish, whatever, it's a faith that says we need to treat everyone with love and respect. Again, I joked about having a rabbi, but I actually have a phrase in the signature block of my email. You've seen it. it the phrase is Tikkun Olam. And Tikkun Olam is an Old Testament period Hebrew phrase that basically translates from Hebrew as healing the world. 
and I, I just challenge anyone I meet to think of a better focus, a better legacy, a better mission in life than the idea of being a healing agent, being a healing force in life. So when I look at, you know, the DEI considerations, I try to get avoid getting caught up in the dialogue over a variety of structural issues because the structural issues, even like the Supreme Court ruling that came about uh, yesterday as they finish up their term, you know, has, you know, it, it can cut both ways. The Dr. Martin Luther King, who I wrote about as a young journalist, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, whose views I embraced, basically said race should not be a deciding factor in life. Mm -hmm. And yet today, generations of Asians Americans are being disadvantaged because because big government has decided to pick the winners. And that's what the Supreme Court basically rebelled against this week. So I can be a an advocate and try and work hard to do the right thing, but from a political point of view, I can also in effect resist the mandates as the Supreme Court tended to do of big government picking the winners. Mm -hmm. And you know, I guess I'm probably sharing a bit of my politics there, even though I am still a Democrat, but I'm decidedly a centrist Democrat, not a not a leftist big big government Democrat. Mm -hmm. So, and, and by the way, and you mentioned my neighbor. So, I, yeah, I go back with Joe Biden 45 years as a young reporter. I covered Joe before when when Joe was 35 years old. I've helped Joe. Joe's helped me. I mentored Joe's daughter. Joe, Joe, actually, you mentioned my silver anvil in the introduction. That was a campaign to vindicate the scapegoated 1941 Pearl Harbor commanders, Admiral Kimmel and General Short. And Joe Biden actually ran point for me on that campaign in 1998 to 2000. And we generated three votes in Congress that progressively vindicated the scapegoated commanders. Mm -hmm. So Joe today lives a block and a half from me. I had a visitor in from Italy yesterday. I drove him past Joe's house. I, I took him into Joe's Catholic church where he actually met Joe's priest. So, you know, our whole community is a very uh, kind of an overgrown small town of a community. And, and you know, Joe is somebody we would have not seen in the coffee shops. Joe and I had the same pharmacist for years at Walgreens. Uh, we bought our suits at the same Joe Bank store. But that's the nature, as you know, Peter, that's the nature of really an overgrown small town. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. But, you know, one of the things when you were mentioning DEI, one of the things that I think we've all begun to see now uh, over the last few years, particularly when we look at TV commercials now, you know, just look at how integrated and uh, the, the, the representation of a wide range of groups that are now in those commercials that heretofore had almost never been seen. You know, particularly, I, I think we might say Asian Americans are featured more prominently now than I think I've ever seen in over the years. So people are beginning to understand, you know, about the importance of embracing DEI uh, concepts because they see benefits to it, particularly commercial uh, organizations. Uh, they see benefits uh, from that, and they're moving forward to making sure it happens. Yeah, well, that's absolutely the case. Interestingly, when I bought another business that I have four and a half years ago, my first two 
recruits, and it was not so much by design, but the first two team members I hired, uh, aside from the people who came with it, were African-American. Interestingly, I've got a project that I'm working on now where I'm working with, uh, I'm going to call him a young man, he's in his mid-40s, clinically blind, but he can see a computer screen, but out of his disability, he had an unfortunate criminal conviction, uh, and I'm trying to give him guidance and support working for an expungement and give him an opportunity to work his way back mm-hmm. and create or create a uh, an independent income for himself through the work he does for me and maybe uh, hopefully for others that gives him a chance to earn his way back. But again, I go back to that whole ethic about love your neighbor. And and that's, in my view, the spirit that each of us needs to bring. Well, I certainly agree with you there. But let me ask you now, because we certainly did touch quite a bit on community benefits agreements, are there any other things that you think we should know about that we didn't touch on? Well, Probably, you know, when you, you know, given that your audience, Peter, will be an audience that has a strong interest in communications and strategic communications, I think uh, for a guy like me who's been around this field for 50 years, I started as a reporter. I, I kid that I have a checkered past having been in the Army during Vietnam. I was in Army counterintelligence 67 to 70, being a reporter from before that and from 70 on and then joining DuPont. And when you when you look at that, the interesting thing uh, in, to me has been the evolution of our field uh, from really a focus on just on communication where really the cornerstone skill set had been media and media relations. Today, the media through its own self-inflicted way has diminished itself as the force it once was in Delaware, our, our own newspaper has shrunk to maybe 20,000 copies delivered uh, from 125,000, mm-hmm. you know, 45 years ago when I came here. So the media has basically made itself less impactful. But what that's meant is that we've needed, all of us, to work at and understand community, including social affinity. And so what what that means to me is that our work has moved more from than just strategic communications really into community building and community management, community relationship management. And and that's the increasing challenge of, of what we do. And when you look at the implications of that, they're pretty fundamental. One is to behave ethically. Another is to be transparent uh, and uh, a third is to keep your commitments and you know I think that that's that has been the really relevant and important part of, of where we're moving Peter you and me and, and others who do, who do what we do uh, as a profession well Sam let me say that uh, this has been a very very engaging uh, discussion that we have had here today and I really want to say thank you so very much for uh, taking the time to uh, come join the, the uh, podcast today, and I'm sure that there are going to be a lot of listeners who will benefit uh, from your wisdom. Well, uh, Peter, I'm, I'm humbled by your comments. I, I truly am. Thank you. And I just uh, I, I value the opportunity to, to build on our relationship, yours and mine. I'm here, Peter. Feel free to reach out. 
uh, and I invite any of your listeners to reach out to me. I'm easy to find on on LinkedIn and and by searches and so on. You know, I I I, I kidded my this young mentee today at lunch, uh, who's 25. You know, I'm still working on my next five year plan. <laughs> I keep renewing my five year plans every year, and and people come up to me, Peter. They say, Sam, buddy, when are you going to retire? And I say. Well, when you read my obituary, you can assume that I've probably <laughs> retired. And and uh, but you know, I'm an old farm boy. I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Illinois. I grew up on a sharecropper's farm, uh, right down to the outhouse out back. Uh, we did not have indoor plumbing, and our Saturday night bath was a galvanized metal uh, in a metal tub on the kitchen floor where the water was warmed on the stove. That's how I started. That's the six day a week farm life I read uh, was in with church on Sunday. And today I live a block and a half from the president of the universe of the United States. And I work with clients from CEOs to universities and all of that. I, you know, I love what I'm doing. I'm out there, I'm available and I welcome any kind of outreach uh, any of your listeners, uh, you or colleagues or friends want to make. Okay. Well, my guest today has been Sam Waltz with Sam Waltz and Associates of uh, Strategic Council. And uh, Sam, as he mentioned before, is in Wilmington, Delaware. So I want to thank Sam again. And, of course, I always want to thank my listeners for uh, joining in on our uh, podcast. And, of course, if you've enjoyed the podcast, we certainly would appreciate a review from you. And I also encourage you to share this podcast with uh, your friends and colleagues. So as I always say, continue to listen and uh, listen for the next edition of the Public Relations Review Podcast. This podcast is produced by Communication Strategies, an award-winning public relations and public affairs firm headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for joining us. Thank mm-hmm. you.